truth of the matter is, Josh, you have the hardest part down. You can actually hit notes. See, I can't hit the notes, so waving the hands is, I do a lot of that just so people are distracted from how many notes I'm missing, so. I have to be careful when I go to an assembly that I don't sit too close to the hymn starter because uh, they'll usually ask me to move the next time I visit because they have a hard time staying on key when I'm so off key sitting right behind them. And uh, I think Bob could attest to that. He's trying not to make me feel bad, but the truth is the truth, as they would say. The camp that David mentioned is Fawson Pines. It's about 30 miles east of Redding, California. It's about 5,000 feet, so it's up in elevation. It's a camp that the folks at Buena Park have been putting on for as long as most of them can remember, maybe 40 or 50 years. Um, Sid and Linda Osborne, who you know, have been in charge of that camp for about the last 20 years, I believe, or so, or 25 years. It's uh, their desire to get as many people to go as possible. As you know what a week of camp usually costs, they have set the price at $100 this year. Last year it was $200. They want more people to come, so they've reduced it to $100. And then they've also added the caveat that if you can't afford the $100, to let them know and they will help you come even if you can't afford the $100. They provide transportation from Buena Park. Starting Saturday night, I think the bus leaves 10 o'clock. You'd have to double check on that. Drives all night and gets to the camp about 9 o'clock the next morning. Starts the camp, we finish at Friday at 9 o'clock. You get on the bus and you drive all day back to um, LA and, and they leave you at Buena Park about 9 o'clock that night, eight, 8 to 9 on Friday night. So the cost, the transportation is included in the cost, which is a good deal because it's not cheap to drive all the way up to Reading. And um, it's a Greyhound type bus. It's a, you know, one of the, they ran a charter. The bus driver sits there all, all week and listens to the messages. Uh, he has been unsaved in the past. They've had the same bus driver for a number of years though and he sat on the son of the gospel so you might pray for him. It is a family camp and a youth teenage type camp running simultaneously. So there's some people who bring their young kids and their families and they have separate morning meetings for that group. They have then a separate meeting for the youth that are there with their cabin leaders. And then at night, everybody gathers together at the lake and sort of like Victory Circle, but on a lake. And um, then we have singing and messages and testimonial time and stuff at the lake. It's been, last year was my first time going and I enjoyed it a lot. And this year I'm gonna drag my wife all the way up there also to um, attend. So just to let you know, if you're interested, uh, you can contact me, I'll forward you the information, or you can contact Sid Osborne, and he can give the information to you. So we'd love to have anyone who'd like to come. It's the last week of August, so it starts July 24th. The bus would leave July 23rd from July. Last week of July. So it's July 23rd. I think some people start school that last week of August, so they, it's July 23rd. They get campers from Idaho, Washington, Texas, 
It's a family come every year from Texas. Washington, there's a large group that comes from Seattle, a large group that comes from Portland, as well as a large group that comes from LA. So you'd be welcome to come if you'd like to come. If you would turn tonight to Luke 23, we're going to sort of continue on in Luke with some of the... And interestingly enough, we're going to skip the actual crucifixion. And so we're going to start with verse 39. And here we're going to have the story, if you would, or the incident with the two thieves. And Luke's the only one who mentions part of this story. You won't find it anywhere else, and we're going to mainly look at what Luke has to say in this passage, starting with Luke 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou... Fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing amiss. And he said unto him, Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, shalt thou be with me in paradise. It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness, there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, in, un, into thy hands I commend my spirits, and having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now that when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And all the people that came together in that, to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And all his acquaintances and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off, beholding these things. And the Lord will add a blessing to the reading of his word. In the first verse, we see what many times is a cry of many people. And that cry is by the thief, the one thief on the cross, if thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. One of the things that we run into today is this idea that God's powerless over evil because he's currently not doing anything to seemingly stop it. And why are we having these mass shootings? We had one in San Bernardino, we had one recently in Orlando. Why is this happening? if there's a powerful God and God's doing something about it. Well, here we have a thief that's caught up in his circumstances. And he's wondering why Jesus isn't doing anything about the circumstances. And unfortunately, I think sometimes Christians fall into this category. As they run into to, to circumstances, we've had examples here in this assembly We've had examples in other assemblies where the circumstances, health-wise, otherwise, are not good. And you look at the circumstances, and they're overwhelming. They seem insurmountable. And this thief was in a circumstance that was overwhelming and insurmountable, and he turns and he says, why aren't you doing something? Where's your power? Why aren't you taking care of this? 
But God has been consistent throughout Scripture that there's something that must take place before God can act. God delivers, but there's something that must occur before God can act. I think we see this best in the example of the Passover. The Jews, the children of Israel, were slaves in Egypt. They had a tremendous problem. What took place, Bo, before God delivered them from their problem of Egypt? The Passover. God commanded that each household take a lamb, that they slay the lamb, and that the blood be applied. That took an act of faith. That took obedience. Now, what if they'd say, wait, if you're a good God, why aren't we delivered? Why do we have to do something else first before you deliver us? What is the situation here? Now, we know from that example and so many others that what took place, they obeyed. And what happened? Pharaoh let him go because all the firstborn in Egypt that didn't have the blood applied to the mantle died. But were they delivered from Pharaoh at that point? No, they weren't delivered yet. It took them to go to the Red Sea and be hemmed in by the Red Sea with Pharaoh closing down on them, and then God delivered them. He parted the Red Sea, they entered in, and the Red Sea closed over Pharaoh's army and they were delivered from Pharaoh. At first it took an act of faith. It took an act of faith. Let's look at one other passage, if you would. Let's look at Luke. Let's look at Luke 4, where the Lord starts his ministry, and we're going to see this again. So he comes back to Nazareth, and it's a very familiar passage to us. He comes back to Nazareth. He, he's in the synagogue. He opens the scriptures. He reads the scriptures from the book of Isaiah. He closes a mid-sentence. And they're all sitting there looking at him going, aren't you Joseph's son? I mean, he'd already been to Galilee. He'd already been healing. And the idea here is, is that they say, prove yourself. Prove yourself. Now, let's look at verse 23, if you would. And this is his reply. When they're saying, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself, here's his reply. He is not a trickster. He is not a genie. He is not a fairy godmother. He just doesn't prove himself at everyone's whim and desire. I, I, it, it bothers me when Christians say, well, the diagnosis is cancer, but we know God's good. Well, we know God's good no matter what the diagnosis is and no matter what the outcome is because God is always good. His goodness does not depend on, his, on our deliverance from this particular situation. And here's his response in verse 23. He said unto them, ye shall surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself, Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. Do something, prove it, show us that you're powerful. And he said, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you a truth, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias, 
when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. When the prophet goes to the widow, does she say, prove yourself? If you remember the story, he comes and she goes, I have enough to make a couple cakes from the oil and, and the barley I have. We're going to eat that and we're going to die because that's all I have. And he says something as you read the story, it's almost shocking. Make those cakes for me first. And she does. And she does. And then we know that the cakes, the, the, the barley never runs out and the oil never runs out. Because she acted in faith, she was delivered by the Lord. The next example that he gives, verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elias the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And, and he brings up Naaman. What, what happened? The, the young girl told Naaman that her master could heal. He goes over there at first time. He hears what he's supposed to do, dip seven times in this little creek in Israel. He says, I have better rivers in Syria. I can go back there and dip there. Has second thoughts. He goes back and he bays. And what happens? He's healed. Now, what's the significance of these two stories there in Nazareth, though? These are Jews begging for him to prove himself and he points to two Gentiles who had faith, who were delivered by the Lord because they first believed. Their problem was they wanted proof before they would believe. What did they do? Next verse, and all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. They understood. They fully understood what he was saying. He wasn't going to prove himself. In order for them to see his mighty works, they had to first believe. We see that here back in Luke 23. Let's go back to Luke 23. If you would, let's look at the second thief now. Verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Doth not thou fear God, seeing thou art the same condemnation? One of the great stories in the gospel is the storm. The master's asleep in the back of the boat. Jesus is asleep. The storm comes up, and, the, and the, I would have done the same thing. The disciples panic, and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? They're in fear of their very lives. And he stands up in the boat and he rebukes the wind and the waves and the storm and it's perfect peace. And then we read that then the disciples feared. It's one thing to fear about your physical safety. It's another thing to fear about your eternal destiny. It's a one thing to fear man and what man can do to you, it's a whole nother thing to understand that there's a God that we're going to answer to. 
This thief is in dire straits. He's about ready to die. No one survived crucifixion. It was 100% that he was going to die. And yet he's not worried about escaping the circumstances of his soon-to-be death. Instead, he's beginning to see and realize with the eye of faith that there's something going on here that's far, far greater. And that there's something far greater to fear. And that's a just God. Not dying at the hands of men, but a just God. And so he says, dost thou not fear God? It's a remarkable transformation. I don't know if I'd have that presence as I die to be more worried about the fear of God than I am about my immediate circumstances of dying. Notice what he says in verse 41. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. One of the things that when someone comes to salvation, that's basically a requirement, is to realize that they are helpless and that they've been justly judged by God and held accountable. A person who doesn't believe in God, a person who doesn't believe there's a just God, a, police, a person who doesn't believe in the everlasting uh, eternity, they're not going to fear God. Because they don't really understand their standing before God. This is a remarkable transformation in this thief that he comes to that point where he realizes, number one, that he's a sinner, that number one, he's justly being punished. And I would say that for most people on the path to salvation, understanding our true nature and where we stand before God is step number one. And realizing who Jesus Christ is, that he can be our substitute, that he's absolutely perfect, that there is no sin in him. And therefore he could die for us is step number two. And we see that here in this thief. And we indeed justly, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. And because he then has a grasp of who Jesus Christ is and what's actually happening, notice what he says next in the next verse. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, Lord. First comes repentance and an understanding of their just standing before God. And then he turns to him. He turns to the man who's dying next to him on a cross and calls him Lord. This is remarkable faith. This is the faith of the widow. This is the faith of Naaman. I would even suggest to you that this is the faith of Father Abraham. Turn over, if you would, to Romans 4. So verse in 2 Corinthians, when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that 
would be my desire, and unfortunately it's a desire that I rarely am able to come to. But Paul says this, while we look not at things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal, my vision is often temporal. I get caught up in the circumstances and everything around me, and I have a hard time lifting my eyes up to see the eternal. My vision's temporal. I have to constantly remind myself to try to see eternal values in here. Here's this thief on the cross. He's dying, and somehow his vision's no longer temporal. And I would suggest that's a vision of faith. Let's look at Abraham here. The 19th verse of chapter 4. Speaking of Abraham... And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, was so strong in faith, giving glory to God. I'll tell you one of my problems is I'm not like Abraham. I stagger at my experience. I look back. And I assume because it always has been this way, that it's going to continue to always be that way. Abraham, that wasn't true of. There was no one his age who had a child. And yet, and yet, he believed. He did not stagger at the fact that everybody else and every experience told him it wasn't possible. We read that later when he takes Isaac up the hill. He tells the servants, I and the, and the lad will return. Hebrews tells us the reason he made that statement is because he believed that God would resurrect him from the dead. There had never been a resurrection. He had no experience to rely on. But he had faith. He had a unique faith. A faith that wasn't going to let circumstances, wasn't going to let history, wasn't going to let experience, wasn't going to let anything else stand in his way of believing. And he believed. That's powerful faith. It's, it's, it's a faith I would love to have. It's a faith I struggle with. But it's a faith that I know is true. Isaiah, you don't have to turn to this. I'll read this. Thou will keep him in perfect mind, whose mind is stayed on. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because thou trust they, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. Isaiah twenty six two and three and four. The reason I don't have peace is because I fail to trust the Lord in every given situation. I start looking around at the circumstances. I'm sort of like Peter. I take my eyes off the Lord, and I'm soon sunk in the water, yelling, Lord, help me, because I don't believe. I don't have the faith to see past my experience, past history. And I'll tell you one of the ways that it affects me is I tend to give up on people. If someone's sunk that deep in that particular sin, they're pretty much hopeless. I don't know that God's going to be able to rescue them. And I give up. And the truth of the matter is <laughs> that 
I'm giving up because my experience tells me I've never seen one before. How sad. Because God tells me that I should have the faith of Abraham and I shouldn't be staggered by my experience and I should believe. And the scriptures tell me that if I believe, I will see. I will see. Let's again, let's look again at this thief on the cross. Verse 42, again, of, of Luke 23. And Jesus said, and, and he said, Jesus, he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Here is this person who's dying on the cross next to him. He calls him Lord. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, the disciples, as we know, were totally discouraged after the death of Jesus Christ. They rode to Emmaus. They said, we thought this was the one. Here's the thief dying next to him, sees him as coming into a kingdom, sees him as a kingdom, sees him having a future kingdom. That's remarkable faith. This verse reminds me of a very famous verse that we often quote, Romans 9, Romans 10, 9, and I always say 9 instead of 10, but Romans 10, 9 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that the, the Lord Jesus, it's exactly what takes place here, confession that he's Lord, and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead. The thief didn't even have that opportunity. A thief believed that God would raise him from the dead and put him in charge of a kingdom while he was yet dying. Something most of the disciples didn't believe. Thou shalt be saved. Thou shalt be saved. I would suggest to you that's exactly what's happening. Here was the thief. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not, shall not be ashamed. He places his faith and trust, no expectations. He didn't expect anything back for that. He just recognized that this person dying next to him was going to come into a kingdom and he calls him Lord. Remarkable faith. This is before the earthquakes. This is before the darkness. This is before any of those things took place. He recognizes Jesus for who he is. And we have all history. We have all scriptures. We have prophecies galore. We have everything that we would need to put our faith in Jesus Christ. This man had none of those advantages. We don't know how much he knew and how much he didn't know. But in the time of the apex of the crisis of his life, he stopped thinking about himself and the immediate future that he had. And he started looking with eternal vision at the man on the cross next to him. And he says, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus responds in verse 43, verily or truly, verily or truly, what great grace. As the Lord reaches out to him and assures him 
that he will be remembered. In fact, remembered in a particular way. As he's, I say unto you today, thou shalt be with me in paradise. Think about that. He believed that the Lord was going to have a kingdom of power and glory. A man who's dying on a cross next to him. He believes that this man is Lord and he will have a kingdom of power and glory. And what does the Lord say to him? You will be there with me. You will be there with me. It's amazing. It's amazing faith. It's amazing answer. The Lord saw his heart. The Lord knew he believed. And the Lord responds. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Now I don't have that type of faith. I get overwhelmed by circumstances. This man did not. This is remarkable faith. Let's finish. Let's look at verse 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was a darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. People want to explain this darkness away as it was, a, it was an eclipse of the moon, but it was a full moon as a Passover always is a full moon. I've even lately heard the story about the eruption of a volcano in Italy and the dust covered the sun and it was hard to see. But Luke wants us to know that it isn't the darkness. It isn't just darkness. It is a darkness. It is a specific darkness. It is not a darkness he had ever experienced before. It was unique darkness. I've never been to... Carlsbad and seen the caverns. I've had testimony though that when you're in their caverns and they turn the lights off, it is so dark you can't see anything and it's almost overwhelming and oppressive, the darkness. And I would suggest to you that this is a type of darkness that Luke's talking about by calling it a darkness. It was unique. This isn't just walking, I parked my car the other day about. Oh, about 10 blocks from the house, which is not unusual if I get home late on Sunday night. In fact, it was last Sunday night. And walking, I could, we have terrible sidewalks, but I could see the sidewalks. There was enough light for me to see. Didn't have a flashlight. I remember not too many years ago, maybe, you know, like 45. Um, I was up at Verdugo working on staff, and we were in the kitchen, and sun had gone down it was dark and we had to walk back to the to the dorms we were staying in and i walked into a rock and just messed my leg up something fierce for the rest of the week because it was so dark i did not see that rock. this is a type of darkness we're talking about and why and why was it dark i would suggest to you it's a darkness because and remember it's from high noon high noon it was dark, and, and notice another thing that he says, because we don't want to miss this, over all the earth. This wasn't Jerusalem. This wasn't Judea. This wasn't the area of the Mediterranean. Luke wants to know that this darkness was over all the earth. This is very much a unique 
darkness. I would suggest to you from Leviticus 25, we know this. Speak unto Aaron and his son, saying, This is the law of the sin offering. In the place where the burnt offering is killed, shall the sin offering be killed before the Lord. It is most holy. Now, there was holy ground. And it wasn't for the unbeliever. It wasn't for the scoffers. It wasn't for those who said he saved others himself. He cannot save for them to witness. As the Bible tells us, the one who knew no sin becoming sin for us. God shut him out. He shut him out on purpose, and he shut him out in darkness. Now, we read Isaiah, and it was saying that God saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. There was one who could see, and there was one who needed to see to be satisfied. And God put his stamp of approval on that sacrifice by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Luke's going to conclude, and the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And he's going to tell us that the veil was rent. That introduces a whole new thing. We have access to the presence of God. Think about that. I don't know that we... And let me say this. I'm sometimes concerned about the irreverence we have, especially at the remembrance meeting. The high priest could only enter into the holiest of all once per year and not without blood, first for himself and then blood for the nation. It was a rare privilege, and only the high priest could do it. All the other priests could just stand by. Now they could minister in the outer court. If you remember right, in the, in the tabernacle there were two courts. In the temple there were two courts. There was a holiest with a where the mercy seat was, and then outward we have the brazen offer and the showbread and, and the altar of incense, sorry, the altar of incense, the candlestick, and the, and the showbread table. And remember, there was no chair for, because their work was never finished. The veil's rent. One of the things we know that once that veil was rent, what? When we turn to Hebrews, we only read about one chamber. There's no holiest and no holiest of all. It's all one. And we have boldness to enter in to the very presence of God. Not just the high priest, but all priests have that, right? And Peter would tell us that we're all priests. Do we consider that when we enter into the very presence of God, what a privilege it is? That we're on holy ground and our conduct and our attitude must match that. Not to be flippant. But because we're in the presence of God. I read words that with our hearts and minds set free and, and our conscience set free by the sprinkling of the blood. That we can approach God with boldness. It, that, that boggles my mind. The fact that I can just approach God is amazing. Do I understand what that means? I don't know that I always fully grasp it. Verse 46, and Luke's going to sum it up by, by some of the people. The, the first one, if you read Luke, Luke doesn't give you all the sayings on the cross. He basically gives you two, Father, forgive them, and then this final one. And he says, 
And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having, thus, having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Luke wants us to know as a doctor that this wasn't the last dying grasp of someone who's overcome by crucifixion. Luke, being a doctor, doesn't go into any of the details of crucifixion, as I mentioned last Sunday night. He, just think, he basically says this, and they crucified him. You don't have to go to the history books to see just how terrible crucifixion was. It suffocated you. You had to push up with your arms to try to get any breath. Your arms with your legs, your arms are usually out of joint. It was basically suffocation that took place. After being beaten and everything else that took place in being crucified, Luke wants us to know that he's still in full strength. He doesn't gasp this out. He's in full strength and he cries with a loud voice. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. John tells us that Jesus Christ said, I have power to lay my life down. I have power to take it up. And here he demonstrates that power. He dismisses his spirit. It wasn't taken from him. We sang a song tonight about him being a victim. I think the world saw him as a victim. But I don't know that he was a victim. He was a willing sacrifice. He was a willing sacrifice. He had power to lay his life down, and he chose to lay his life down. As much as the world saw him as a victory, victim, I do not believe that he was a victim. Now he's going to sum it up in these last three verses with those who are around. So the first one is verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, certainly, this man was a righteous man. Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 2, even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. I want to tell you that this is a tremendous testimony to this centurion. He had probably crucified a few, and here was the first person ever who didn't struggle. Here's the first person who didn't curse him as he drives in the nails or watches his men drive in the nails. Here is a man who's unique and different. A man, even though he seems to be a victim, seems to be in control at the same time. And his response and his testimony is, certainly, this was a righteous man. And he glorified God. Luke only uses this statement seven times in Luke. And every time he uses it, it's someone who's recognizing that God's involved in an act that Jesus Christ did. I believe this man was saved because he glorified God. He gave God the glory for Jesus Christ. And then who's next? Verse 48, and when all the people that came together to that site, and the idea here, site, is a, it's a Greek word that we get spectacle from. It was a spectacle. The Jews, the, the Romans crucified people at major crossroads from primary and major effect. They wanted as many people to see their justice on display. They believed that capital punishment spread fear in the lives of criminals, and they would have second thoughts, 
facing that type of death. And they put these men on display when they crucified him. And he's at a major crossroads. So even those who maybe didn't know exactly what was happening gathered to watch it because it was a spectacle. And notice what it says. Beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned. And the idea is they returned home, struck by everything that took place. They were emotionally moved. They didn't understand it. They didn't really know it. But they knew this was unique, this was different, this was special. I would suggest to you 50 days later, when Peter preached at Pentecost, that these are the folks that got saved who were eyewitnesses to the crucifixion. And it still bothered them. The Holy Spirit worked on them and worked on their conscience. And when Peter preached, they were the first souls added to the church because they were so disturbed at what they saw. And the last one, and all his acquaintances, we're not told who they are. Luke doesn't go into the detail. And the women that followed him from Galilee when he left Galilee on his way to Jerusalem with his face set as a flint to be crucified, there was a large multitude that followed him. You know, I could speculate. I don't like a lot of speculations, but I wonder if Zacchaeus was there. I wonder if Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were there. I wonder how many people who saw Lazarus raised from the dead were there. I wonder who the Galileans were that had followed him all that way. We're told that these folks stood afar off beholding these things. Now, we come to the road of Emmaus, we know some of them went away discouraged. They thought this was a man. They didn't have the faith of the thief. As I look at this and I think about that, I realize that sometimes the faith that I had when I was saved, I have sometimes a hard time exercising that same faith now. It took a great deal of faith to see a man being crucified next to you as Lord and having a future kingdom. A thief had it, but his own followers who had seen him do many mighty works, who had heard him talk about his coming kingdom, they didn't believe. They went away discouraged. They stood afar off. And so I have to ask myself, am I one of those who stands afar off? Am I discouraged because I think I have a God who's still powerless? The world around me, politics, the way this nation's going, the way this world's going, am I overwhelmed by that and I get anxious because I think God isn't in control? God isn't, I get a diagnosis that's not good news. Do I get overwhelmed by that because I'm standing afar off? Or do I have the faith, the faith of this dying thief who wasn't overwhelmed by circumstances at all, wasn't overwhelmed by his experience? He knew one thing, that Jesus was Lord and that he was coming into a kingdom. May I suggest if you do not know Jesus as Lord, you've not accepted him, you do not see him, that you understand 
there is a day of judgment coming. And the only way for deliverance from that judgment is to first place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Let's close. Father, we thank you for this time. Father, we would pray that you would help our unbelief. Father, give us eyes of faith. That we don't look at things which are seen. But like Paul, we can look at things which are unseen. Father, we're so thankful that you have promised that no one who placed their faith and trust in you will ever be disappointed. You'll never let us down. And Father, we see these examples again and again of people who were obedient and you prove yourself strong. So Father, teach us what it means to be obedient. We know the scripture said that if you love me, keep my commandments. Father, I fear that we're powerless. Our faith is weak because we don't keep your commandments. Not a checklist of do's and don'ts, but an honest desire to serve you with our whole heart. Father, teach us what it means to not lean on our own understanding, what it means not to trust our experience, not to despair at circumstances, but Father, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a privilege we have, Father, because of the great work of your son there at Calvary when he took our sins upon him. May you, Father, teach us more and more about the greatness of our Savior so that we might truly say hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for our Savior. We thank you for this opportunity again to speak well of him. May you stir our hearts, Father, to further devotion to the Lord Jesus. We thank you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.